I'm Annabelle Bly, and you're listening to the Ant Hill podcast from The Conversation. We've got a real treat for you on this month's episode of The Ant Hill, but before we get into that, I want to quickly plug this short listener survey we're running at the moment. We really want to hear your thoughts about this podcast and what you'd like us to be doing more or less of. If you're listening via a podcast app, you can find a link to the survey in the show notes to this episode. Or if you're listening on the Conversation website, the link is at the bottom of this article. Or you can always email us on podcast at theconversation.com with any feedback or ideas for future episodes. Okay, that's all the admin out of the way. Now to get on with the show. I'm joined on the line by Philip Martin, a senior investigative reporter at WGBH Public Radio Station in Boston. Hi, Philip. Annabelle, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm doing just well. Just absolutely fine here in Boston. Great stuff. So as well as your job working in public radio in Boston, you are also the host of the Conversation US's podcast series, Heat and Light, which came out this year. Could you tell us a little bit about what Heat and Light is and what it's about? Well, the idea of the very title, Heat and Light, is to look at the year 1968, a watershed year around the world, but particularly here in the United States. Uh, We saw the Democratic National Convention where a police riot occurred there in 1968. We saw the assassination of uh, both uh, Dr. Martin Luther King uh, and Robert Kennedy who was running for president that year. We saw student uprisings at Columbia University. But 1968 was also a year of uh, events that a lot of people know either nothing about or uh, uh, very little about. And we decided to shed some light, if you will, on very heated events of that year, thus the title, Heat and Light. And I understand that you lived through 1968. Do you have any memories of the time? Was it at all influential for you? I would like to say I was a baby in 1968, but more accurately, I was, a, I was coming of age. I was a preteen in 1968, but have very clear memories of that year because uh, living in Detroit, for example, I saw National Guardsmen come through our neighborhood uh, on foot in in tanks. A residential neighborhood in the United States, an African-American neighborhood, uh, and they were responding in 1968, as they had done in 1967, to uprisings in the streets. 1968, the uprising was focused on Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. 1967, that preceded it, it was a look or response to police violence. Aggregately, it was all a response to, to racism, and folks had basically opted to uh, take to the streets in what many called riots and what other people call uprisings. Wow. And I know that the events in Detroit are the focus of one of the episodes of Heat and Light. Uh, we're actually going to play the fifth episode from the Heat and Light series, which is called The Mother of All Demos, and it's all about the birth of Silicon Valley. So in, as I understand it, in December 1968, there was this demonstration by a computer scientist, and it was kind of the birth point of Silicon Valley as we know it today. That's absolutely right. Uh, Silicon Valley, we think of almost, we always think of, of course, in modern, modern day terms, we think about robotics, and we think about the computer chip, and we think about Apple and, uh, and Google. 
But way before that, those names even appeared anywhere in the uh, in the public consciousness, we uh, had a fellow named William Shockley uh, in the 1950s, who um, better known as the uh, father of the modern-day eugenics movement, but also the, the person who invented the silicon chip. And that was considered the, the main catalyst for what we now know as Silicon Valley. And it built up around the area in San Jose, California. And so 1968 was a, a pivotal year in that number of inventions were made that year, but also because it's folks start to gravitate to that valley, to that area. And from from that period on to what we have today, we see this massive industry now uh, that's taken form and as high tech. Yeah, I mean, like you say, Silicon Valley is is a place, a concept even that we all feel like we're very familiar with today and and it impacts all of our lives and you know I'm I'm holding a smartphone right now which obviously came out of Silicon Valley but to hear and to understand the the, the story of its birth and and its development is really fascinating so we're going to listen to that now so here it is heat and light the mother of all demos a researcher from Stanford Research Institute demonstrates a personal computer that also has what he calls a mouse. I don't know why we call it a mouse. Sometimes I apologize. It started that way and we never did change it. They're going to allow the computer to turn from this terrifying Borg that's in the control of the state or big companies to something that becomes a tools of liberation of individual empowerment. And that was the start of Silicon Valley. We have a pointing device called a mouse. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? You're probably listening to this podcast on a supercomputer that fits in your pocket. That would have never been possible back in 1968, when computers could be the size of an entire room. On this episode, we're going to talk about the moment that signaled the end of computers as alien pieces of unattainable technology associated with the military and the government and transitioned into household devices. Historian Margaret O'Mara from the University of Washington will explain how the inception of personal computing gave rise to Silicon Valley and what the tech capital of America meant for jobs, immigrants, and our future. Margaret, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So look, when you think about 1968, you think about a lot of things, Vietnam War, campus demonstrations. I don't think a lot of folks think about what was happening in Silicon Valley. Why 68? 68 was a pivotal year for Silicon Valley, just like it was for America. And the things that were happening in America were shaping Silicon Valley as well, of course. It was, you know, this is part of the Bay Area, hub of the counterculture. Both Stanford and Berkeley, the campuses were aflame with student protest. Um, but also, it was a landmark year in uh, Silicon Valley's business community. And so in 68, we have these the ingredients of the new, smaller, personalized, individualized computer. The PC, the, the Apple II, the original Apple computer, wouldn't come into being until 1977. But nine years earlier, you have... Intel, the company that makes the microchips, the microprocessors, it's founded. 
And then also in December, the very last month of 1968, there is an event in San Francisco that later becomes known as the mother of all demos. Okay, to talk about control devices, we'll use this overhead camera shot. And it is a researcher from Stanford Research Institute, SRI, who demonstrates a whole setup of a personal computer, a keyboard, that also has what he calls a mouse. I don't know why we call it a mouse. Sometimes I apologize. It started that way, and we never did change it. A little wooden box that you move around, and you can point and click. Other features of the mouse are that it stays put. I can lift it and replace it. And it's this graphical user interface that's being demonstrated in 1968 in San Francisco. It is something that, you know, the New York Times does not put it on its front page. There is no, Mm. you know, no one's paying attention. But the tech world is paying attention. And this is, you know, kind of goes down in history as, as this, you know, remarkable moment. And this is all about how do you get, not only how do you get machines to think, which is what the project of computing has been, but how do you get machines and people to interact in a more human way? Because what were these big mainframes? Was that the the operative question? Yeah, like it was called man-computer symbiosis, because, you know, you always talk about man then. Look, what uh, in April of 1968, what is released into movie theaters? 2001, A Space Odyssey. Who is the star, if there is a star, of 2001? It's this giant, malevolent supercomputer, the HAL 9000, with its blinking red eye. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Al, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Al? 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 That was what computing meant in 1968 America to a lot of people, particularly to young people, people and, you know, the kids in college who are raging against the machine. That is the machine. This is what the computer is, this menacing thing that represents the military industrial complex, that represents the the killing machines of Vietnam. You know, this is the way that the counterculture is talking about this stuff. And right at the same time, there's the beginnings of this technology that are going to allow the computer to turn from this terrifying Borg that's in the control of the state or big companies to something that shrinks down to something on your desk that becomes a tool for creativity. And this is the way the next generation, the Vietnam generation, the baby boom generation, starts talking about computers as these tools of liberation, of individual empowerment. And that's really how they have continued to be and how Silicon Valley has defined itself ever since. Well, that's true. But when you think about um, Silicon Valley, it's almost synonymous with um, self-empowerment for some, uh, the notion of uh, startups. But in 1968, uh, you're talking about something that was in an incipient form, but yet had already gained some steam uh, in, in, in previous years. That's right. The companies founded in that year were ones that went on to shape the technology industry going forward, most notably Intel, the microchip maker that came out a few years later with the microprocessor, the what they called the computer on a chip, which essentially allowed the miniaturization of electronics, including computers, um, making the what had been a room-sized or refrigerator-sized computer uh, a personal computer, a desktop computer. 
You're looking at something so astonishing, it almost contradicts everyday conceptions of reality. It does the work of a room full of electrical circuits, yet it uses almost no energy. Its predecessor cost over a million dollars and took up hundreds of square feet, but it costs less than $10 and is smaller than your fingertip. It's called a chip. You also have founding of investment banks, venture capital firms in 1968 that become uh, major players in the Valley ecosystem. One of the things that is forgotten and, and we're left out of, of the narrative that we hear a lot about Silicon Valley and why Silicon Valley is this extraordinary capital of tech is that it has this ecosystem that isn't just tech companies, but it's also law firms, it's venture capital firms, investors, it's uh, marketing firms, PR firms, these specialized service industries that grow up around the tech industry that are made up of people with experience in this specific part of the industry and that help make the companies legendary. So this was sort of a symbiosis in, in many ways you uh, of, of, of high tech, uh, the emerging, emerging high tech, and uh, as you pointed out, those companies around it. And of course, also the role of the universities in that area. Uh, Stanford, uh, I, I assume, was key to that uh, development. Stanford was absolutely key. It was central. And it's really interesting because people have been trying to recreate Silicon Valley's mojo ever since Silicon Valley first got its name <laughs> or even before. And one of the things that, that other regions look at, it, they say, hey, they have a research university. There's Stanford, you know, having this really critical part in the ecosystem, which is right. Well, that, that's right. But another perhaps less obvious aspect was that Silicon Valley was attracting a lot of immigrants at that point, a lot of Latinos, as well as migrant labor from um, African-American communities in the South. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't seem to have benefited that much, though, in modern days. When you look at Silicon Valley, you certainly don't think about diversity. But it's a very diverse place. And it was, it was these people, these individuals, who helped build it, correct? That's right. Well, Silicon Valley up until the 1980s was a manufacturing area, right? So semiconductors and, and computer hardware and software was being built there. And how do you build those things? It's assembly line. It's, it's uh, you know, people working. It's human-powered uh, fab plants and, uh, and factories. This is where your iPhone 6 comes from. By the time you get to 1968, you have some of the microchip companies, the silicon semiconductor companies that give Silicon Valley its name and its identity. They were very early movers in outsourcing to East Asia. These are the first secret pictures from inside the factories that produce for Apple. An exhausted workforce, people sleeping on their breaks, others falling asleep as they work. They're moving plants to Taiwan and Singapore in search of cheap labor. Um, it's easy also to ship microchips across the Pacific. You know, it's not like cars. And so now you, you know, look at look at the landscape of Silicon Valley. You, you know, see the, the great spaceship of the new headquarters of Apple, which is populated by highly educated white collar people. But of course, where is the iPhone made? It's over in southern China. That's, uh, that, that seems to parallel what we've, of course, what we saw in the Rust Belt, uh, where uh, both of uh, labor was being contracted out, outsourced, and of course, uh, the, the, the products that they make were being uh, offshored. Absolutely. And it's also a symbiotic relationship. Uh, industry veteran put it much better than I could. He said, Silicon Valley invented the Rust Belt. We made everything they did obsolete. What they did was they, th these microchips replaced the mechanical innards of machines. They automated the factories. <laughs> 
they made it not as you, you didn't need as many workers. <laughs> um, and they, they, they maximize and they maximize profits. And they maximize profit. But but of um, course there there's also I must say there's also a, an upside to Silicon Valley. I don't want to sound like I'm condemning the entire uh, project. Uh, I think about uh, when my dad used to be a my dad was a janitor and he would. Um, we would go in, inside these places uh, where they were cleaning at night, and you'd see uh, these huge data processing uh, machines, gigantic. And it's amazing to think that what was huge, gigantic, uh, of a floor or in room full of data processing machines, it's now confined to a microchip. Mm-hmm. It's uh, amazing. I'm fascinated by that. I assume you are too. I am, and. I- I am look we, we we walk around with supercomputers in our pockets now. That is astounding. There's dark and light in the history of Silicon Valley. There is this you know this extraordinary technical technological achievement and and these instances of 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 many cases of people from very modest circumstances who become extraordinarily influential and build these these world-changing companies, um, and and the power of education and higher education, the platform that the 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 that quarter century of post-war prosperity gave this part of California to become this this innovation factory. It's it's amazing, um, but also Silicon Valley. You know, thinking about the the current when we look at currents in labor and manufacturing, we look at um, these th- these broader changes over time. It also sh- shows that Silicon Valley is also mirroring things that are going on in the rest of America. And they're also benefiting from that. You know, everything's falling apart in the 70s. You know, New York is almost going bankrupt. Uh, everything's in crisis. Uh, Detroit is going hat in hand to Congress for a bailout. And there's the valley, like a phoenix rising from the ashes of the industrial economy. It is the good news story. But the monoculture of Silicon Valley is, it's both its one of its greatest strengths and its Achilles heel. And this is what I mean by this, that, that the Silicon Valley culture, the community of, I call it a Galapagos. It's this strange little isolated place where these distinctive breeds of business people grow. And it it springs from the, the two main professions. One is engineering, which in the mm-hmm. 1950s and 60s, this time of Genesis, was entirely male, really. You Most math and engineering departments at American universities would you know say women couldn't major in them or wouldn't take women as graduate students? There was almost nobody, um, and and certainly no one of color or very few people of color. You'd have a few people who were foreign born, um, but they were definitely in the in the minority. You didn't have the great numbers of foreign students that you do have, kind of from the 1970s forward in these programs. I find it also interesting that just a few miles away from uh, Intel, not that far, is San Jose State, that famous uh, fist in the air uh, exhibited by John Carlos and Tommy Smith, two San Jose State um, athletes who took part in the Olympics. And yesterday, the sixth day, was the most dramatic so far. It started with the news that the Black Power disciples Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the Olympic 200 meters gold and bronze medalists, had been suspended by the United States Olympic Committee and given 48 hours. Did that cast a shadow over over Silicon Valley? It cast remarkably little shadow. 
which is so astounding. Smith and Carlos are part of, they're not just standalone, you know, uh, uh, individuals. They are coming out of this very vibrant black power, black studies movement, student movements at San Jose State. Um, not just Black Power, but also Chicano students, feminism, radical feminism. San Jose State is has it going on. And a few miles down the road, you have Intel, you have these other companies being founded, as, and they could have been on another planet. And there are students, students who are protesting on Stanford's campus and on Berkeley's campus who a few years later will be uh, deeply involved in the early stages of the computer, personal computer revolution. But at that point, they're not part of the business community. Some of the issues, of course, that uh, Americans uh, collectively seem to be uh, engaged in is this uh, concerns around privacy. Have you looked at the privacy issue and, uh, and how in its impact on modern day Silicon Valley? Yeah, I think the the story of privacy Computer privacy and, and debates about it have been around as long as the computer. Uh, this this anxiety about what the electronic computer knows. Um, Senator Sam Irvin of Watergate fame was also in the nineteen late sixties and early seventies a crusader uh, for this question of how you protect personal information from the all seeing eye of the computer. He once memorably said, "The computer never forgets," and he was one of a number of lawmakers on Capitol Hill who were holding hearings in the 60s and the early 70s about, about com- computer power and electronic data processing and the loss of privacy, this electronic snooping that was going on. But here's something really interesting. The focus of nearly all of this political conversation was about government computers, because, of course, that was right, right. where most of the computing power lay at that time. Um, the government was a huge <laughs> you know, user of computers, both domestic and military agencies. And so the, the focus was on kind of curbing the government's ability to snoop into and know about people's lives. But yet we seem to be uh, focused now on uh, now the private sector snooping into the lives of, uh, of folks. Tonight, Facebook revealing up to 87 million people, mostly in the U.S., may have had their information improperly shared with political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica. How do you, uh, how would you summarize where we are today? I think there's a, there's is escalating worry and, and there's also reflecting escalating power of, of, you know, AI is no longer a, little robot going down the halls of a research institute. It, It now has, you know, the computing power has, uh, has, has is so much greater than it was 50 years ago. The capacity of the machines to to think for us um, and to and thinking about things like neural networks and machine learning and kind of the state of the art is something to. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety about that and for good reason. Uh, and 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 the challenge I think for Silicon Valley is so much of its its way of thinking uh, comes out of this moment when it was this. Little Galapagos, isolated from the main act of American history, they are no longer on the side of anything. They are the the wealthiest companies, corporations in the world. Bezos's wealth topped one hundred point three billion dollars. It's the first time that anyone has reached. Their products are in use on a daily basis by billions. They have the capacity to alter markets, to um, disrupt all a whole host of things, even things they didn't real even realize they could disrupt. Cab drivers here in New York claim Uber is putting them out of business. 
they're the engineers on this runaway train in some cases where they built these incredibly powerful, amazing algorithms. Again, the sort of technological miracles that come out of this place is, are astounding, but they have unintended consequences. This dashcam video shows the horrifying seconds before a self-driving Uber hit and killed a pedestrian in Arizona. That this is the great challenge that the tech industry has now is is you know going getting heads up from the you know the all-night hackathon and looking and thinking about what are the social impacts of the marvelous technologies they are creating. What you're describing also makes me think, why are you why are you so focused on this issue, deconstructing what happened and what is happening in Silicon Valley? And especially now, when you look at Silicon Valley, not only is it a metaphor for uh, high tech uh, and futurism, it's also a metaphor for inequality. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, I, 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 I got into this business um, and, and became passionate about history because of, well, like a lot of people, elements of my of my biography and being aware, deeply aware of having sort of intersections with with historically significant people and things early on in life. I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. I went to Central High School, the site of the crisis at Central High. The governor who called out the state national guard. Colored youngsters arrived under safe conduct by the guards. But no sooner had they arrived than they were off again. Arkansas had evidently decided to make its own laws on the subject of integration. I graduated. My senior year was 30 years, exactly 30 years after the crisis. Um, I vividly remember the Little Rock Nine returning to Central High as a group. I think it was the first time all of them had come together, if I'm remembering this right. And we're, and we're standing at the, the doorways of our classrooms as they walk down the hall, applauding them. The same hallway that these, these as, as teenagers like us, they had been, you know, occasionally spat upon and, and shunned. And, and feeling that sort of, kind of feeling so close to that history. And um, the, the guy who was governor when I was growing up ran for president and won the presidency. I ended up <laughs> going and working in the White You're House. You're talking, of course, about Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. Um, That's right. And, uh, and and I ended up working in, in the White House. But I saw close up this, uh, you know, the, the process of policymaking and also understanding that, you know, that human beings are as, as flawed as they can be or are, you know, thrust into positions of, of immense power um, and influence. And what interests me about Silicon Valley, the command and control center of the high tech world and, and by extension, the, the business world and and now the the world in which we communicate and and, and the political world is is so shaped by the products of this place. Well, you know, not not only the political world, but it seems like the world itself. Does Silicon Valley have a responsibility to basically address this issue of inequality that um, extends has extended over the decades, and we see in massive form in two thousand and eighteen? I think it does. I think it does for a couple of reasons. One is. Technology is the product of society. It is um, the choice of what to build, of what problem to solve, is a reflection of its 
of the people who are making the technology. And if you don't have the widest spectrum of people in the room making those decisions, then you aren't really changing the world all that much at all. No, you're not. Um, And then Mm -hmm. the other responsibility is, again, these are no longer, this is no longer a business sideshow. This is the main event. Mm. Um, Software has eaten the world. There is... Every technology, every company, in some to some degree, is a technology company because software is running things. There's an opportunity to really redefine what these companies can and should do and what changing the world really means. That was Margaret O'Mara, professor of history at the University of Washington, talking to Heat and Light host Philip Martin, who is still on the line with us. Philip perhaps you could tell us some of your other highlights from the series Heat and Light. Annabelle, definitely appreciate you asking. I would love to point your uh, your audience to uh, another episode, which was the first interracial kiss on national television in the United States. While France and other countries uh, had advanced, at least in the public sphere, on television with interracial relationships, the United States was way behind uh, in terms of how human beings reacted and, and interacted with one another. Obviously, Europe was still dealing with colonialism and, the, and the, uh, the vestiges of colonialism, I should say. In the United States, we were dealing with something even more fundamental, which was the vestiges of slavery. And those vestiges took form, as you know, in the most apparent ways in the American South, where folks were fighting for basic civil rights. But something fundamental lay uh, at the opposition to civil rights in the United States and opposition to integration. And that was a fear by many in the South and in the North, for that matter, of uh, folks crossing the line. And by that, what people meant was interracial relationships. It's something that scared people beyond belief. Go back to 1968, to this episode when Star Trek had a scene in which a black woman is kissing a white man. And this was extraordinary for, for many people, even in the context of outer space, and uh, even if they were under duress by alien forces, as the plot line went, it was still very difficult for many people in the United States to see this line, what was called miscegenation, being crossed. Don't forget, uh, Annabelle, we had just seen many southern states at that time had to abolish miscegenation laws. And suddenly on television, national television, you see a white man kissing a black woman. And that was taboo for many people. And the calls that came into the networks at that time, as you'll hear in this segment, were full of uh, people angry, frightened, and uh, aghast at this um, this moral transgression, as some called it. I'm really glad that that's the, the first episode that you wanted to mention, just because you know, I personally really enjoyed it. Um, I have a stake in the issue as, as the product of an interracial marriage. But it was also astonishing, like you say, that the fact that this was such a big deal from the eyes of someone in 2018, when you when you look at that Star Trek episode and see the fact that, you know, it was barely a kiss. And it's so strange. And I think I think you described it so well, barely a kiss would be considered a peck if that 
<laughs> and they yeah. were being forced to do yeah. it by aliens. <laughs> But uh, the other thing that was great about the episode, I thought, and, and a lot of the episodes on Heat and Light is that, that you feature, you speak to academics who were personally, uh, they, had, they had some sort of personal connection a lot of the time to what they were studying. That's right. The academic who we spoke to for this segment, his parents came together in 1968 and the rest is history. Yeah. Um, so there's loads of great episodes and academics who have not just studied the issues kind of intellectually, but uh, people who've got these great personal experiences of what they're talking about. So yeah, Heat and Light, check it out. And Philip, thank you so much for talking to us over the phone about it. Annabelle, thank you very much. That's it for this episode of the Anthill Podcast. You can read more insight and analysis by academics online at theconversation.com, where you can also sign up to our daily newsletter. And don't forget to check out our listener survey, where you can tell us what you think of the show. We're also now on Twitter, so you can follow us there and say hi. Our handle is at anthillpod. And if you haven't subscribed to The Anthill already, please go do so wherever you get your podcasts from. And we'd love it if you gave us a review too. It really does help. This episode of The Anthill was produced by me, Annabelle Bly, and Gemma Ware. A big thanks, too, to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.